You're listening to audio from Plank Row Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankrowharvest.org. A few new faces there. And um, so we're going to talk about some very foundational things, which is where we left off last week was talking about the foundation of the church or basically the foundation of the individual believer. Now I want to talk about the foundation of the church. We're going to look in Acts this week. We're going to be in Acts another week. I'm not really sure on the next two weeks because uh, I may be here, I may not. It just depends on how things go, where I'm going. I'll try to be here, but we shall see. Um, don't, I'm not making no promises. But otherwise we'll have Charlie Alva or Kevin Hembry will be preaching the next couple of weeks if I'm not here. I'll try to be here. Um, so we have these foundational things that we looked at last week, and that is the foundation stone, if you recall. And if we looked in the New Testament, I mean, we looked in the Bible, we found it in, the, we found it in, uh, where did we find that? We found it in Exodus, we found it in Revelation, and we found it, uh, what, in Isaiah, where it talked about the, the paving stone, and it was of sapphire, and we discovered that that was one of the hardest stones. It's right below a diamond, but really a diamond's about 10 times harder, but sapphire right below the diamond, and that's what the foundation stone is in the believer's heart. And it's founded, the Bible calls the foundation stone, is the Word of God. And then it says on top of that stone, in the believer, in the individual believer, we have the ability to build, starting with the construction that is the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, on the foundation stone. And so you construction guys understand those... uh, those big J-bolts. I used to have one. I had about a 14-inch J-bolt, a 1-inch bolt, and, um, and that's what they would put in concrete, and then you would bolt your, your steel or whatever kind of footer you're putting or whatever kind of base wood or base material, you would bolt that to the foundation stone. Well, what we have in Christ, we have the cornerstone in there. As we develop, we grow in the Word, we hear the Word of God, we pour it in there, we pour it in there, we get filled with that. It says, out of the man... Rivers of living water should be pouring out. So if we're putting the Word of God in, it should be pouring back out everywhere we go, and it should be sprinkling off on other people as we pass around. So what happened was you got all these people hearing the gospel, and we're just starting this little series on, and we're going to be in Acts this week, but we're going to start this little series just kind of getting the foundation part right for this coming year. Then we're going to move into Luke here in a couple weeks. But I really like that verse in Luke. I read it to you last week. I'm going to read it again. Luke 6, 46 and 47, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me, hears my saying, and does them is like a man who builds his house on the rock. That's a paraphrase there on the last part. There's some other stuff there. But whoever comes to me, hears my sayings, and does them will be like a man who builds his house on the rock. Many people have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They accepted it for themselves, but if you remember the different kinds of soil, some seeds penetrate the soil, some seeds sat on top of the soil, some seed the, the sun burned up, and some seed was uh, taken away by the birds, it never took root, and some was choked out by the cares of the world, the thorns and thistles of the world. And so it's all about the development of the seed in the ground. I actually planted a, a kind of grass last year, real durable kind of grass, if you can get it to sprout. It was called Eastern Gamma Grass, and it's considered poor man's alfalfa. It's good for cattle, real high protein. And you've got to plant it in the wintertime so that the, the ground freezing and thawing will break the, the shell on the seed. But I got it in the ground after that real hard frost, and it never did, it never did germinate. That's what some seed does. It costs a lot of money but it never germinated, so I never got any production from the seed. Many believers are just like that. The seed has been planted, 
but they never cultivated the seed. They never picked the weeds away from it. They never let the, they always kept the cares of the world, the materialism part, the secular part that they enjoy so much, the tental, the, 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 what's the word? Tentilating, uh, scintillating part, the, the sensual part. They wanted to hold on to that. And what it did is it kept the seed from, from breaking open and beginning to sprout. It says that the seed has to go into the earth unless the seed dies and then it sprouts. So you put this little wheat seed in the ground, and it lays there. If, if wheat gets rained on like three days, it'll sprout. That's the good thing about wheat. It's a good cover crop. You can put it on the ground, you can put it on top of the ground, or you can drill it in the ground. As soon as it gets rain on it, and it'll jump out of the ground. But it only, the seed wheat that we get around here is really low quality, and it only germinates at like 50%. So that means you've got to put, if you want 100 pounds per acre of growth, you've got to put 200 pounds of wheat on there in order to get the seed to sprout. Because a large percentage of spree, seed will never sprout. It'll get rained on and it won't sprout. It'll get birds come in and fly. You plant wheat, you plant clover, you plant any kind of fine seeds, you will have birds like you've never seen. That's why guys plant it around dove season for the killing fields. It's so much fun to get the doves to coax them in there. But you've got to put a bunch of wheat on the ground because the birds will fly off with the seed. So, so many believers are just like that. They're an ungerminated seed. I'm not saying they're not saved. I'm not going to make that call or that judgment because you will all be judged, appointed once for, die, uh, once for man to die and then the judgment. Every man will be judged on that day. Not by me, by the Most High God. He'll measure you and he'll say, did you germinate? Did you hear the word and did it sprout in you? And if it sprouted and you're saved, he'll say, enter in. Then there's the productive part of the plant where the seed comes out of the soil and it produces a shoot. Some shoots get nipped off by turkeys and deer and cattle and so on, and some go on up and make a productive plant. Some plants produce seed, fruit themselves producing any percentage, 30, 60, or 100-fold, the Bible tells us. Some produce nothing, only themselves. You know, plants don't work that way. If you grow a corn plant and it only grew one kernel of corn, you haven't got anything. But if you get an ear of corn, or better, two ears of corn, and they average 160 grains per corn kernel, well, now you got something. Because next year you can have 320 corn plants, right? And each one of those produces ear. Just in two years you can have ever how many acres of corn, right? But the first seed has to germinate. It has to produce a head. It has to produce seed. And it has to be good seed. I got a bunch of corn from a neighbor, and he's like, you can have it. Uh, you can have it. It was in a corn wagon. And I went to pick it up, and every single corn uh, seed has a hole in it from weevils. And what they do is the weevil drills in there. You ever got weevils in your weed at home, ladies that have flour or something? It drills a little tiny hole in there, and it eats the very part, the most important part of the seed. That's what it eats. It eats the kernel, the part that makes the little sprout. That's what it eats. The whole shell is there. It looks like a good piece of corn until you look at it. It's got a tiny little, smaller than a pencil uh, point of hole in it, and the seed's no good. I could plant that seed all day long. There's 600 bushel of it over there, and it's not even that good for feed for cattle. It's better than nothing, but it's not much because the good part's been eaten. That's the picture. That's the picture of the believer. So many believers have got the seed, the weevils have eaten it, the birds have eaten it, it never sprouted, the cares of the world have surrounded it, and because we don't have a lot of persecution and things like that in our country, we haven't had to bind us together, we've been able to go do our own thing, and we've been an unsuccessful bunch of seeds out there. That's why we're going where we're going. It's just how it is. When God's people come together, do His will, do what it says, we, we 
We come to Christ, we hear his sayings, and we do them. To come to Christ and never grow is a fruitless seed. And a fruitless seed, the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us what he's going to do to it. What's he going to do? He's going to let it mature, then he's going to cut it down, and he's going to throw it in the fire, and it's going to be burned up. All of our works are going to be judged, wood, hay, and gold, silver, precious stones. All are going to be judged. They're all going to be judged by fire, and it's going to see what we are. So knowing that, we need to be developing. That's what we talked about last week. We got that cornerstone, and we need to be building on the cornerstone with valuable treasures, rubies and diamonds, jewels and gold and silver. And that's what we need to be putting on the cornerstone. That's the thing that develops us. That's the thing that's going to hang in there with you when hard times come. You're not, hard times come, economy fails, guess what? You got a bunch of uh, grain with weevil holes in it, it ain't selling. You got a big handful of gold coins you're going to be able to eat. Gold, silver, and precious stones what we want to be building with. I went to an Anglican church. I'm not going to dog other religions or other churches, Baptist, Catholic, you, you name the flavor. I went to an Anglican church um, a week or so ago to go to this wedding. And it was interesting to see just kind of their modus operandi as how they do things. So they start off, and the guy brings in this, you know, he's got the robes on. He's got the little, I don't even remember what all kind of jazz he had. He had ropes, robes, little pointy hat. I don't remember what all kind of stuff. And then he had uh, this cr cross on a pole, shiny brass cross, carries it up to the front, gets to the front, bows down before the altar, does the whatever, karate moves right there in front of the altar. Then he puts the thing up there. Then they have this prayer and that prayer. Then they have the, the common cup, which I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you the trick right now. My children didn't know. I should have told them. There's the trick for the common cup. You get somewhere, and they got the common cup for communion. This is the trick. It's top secret jazz. You don't get this in every church. I'm, I'm telling you. You take the bread, and when they hold the cup for you to drink, you pretend to dip it in the juice. And then you pop it in real quick before they can see it ain't red. I'm telling you that's the trick so you don't have to drink out of the cup after everybody else with the hemes have drank out of the cup. Don't do it. Just, you know, be a part, but don't drink out of the cup. But anyway, some of those things, they're not, I, I'm looking at all those things, and they're, none of them are necessarily wrong. And I'm not saying they're biblical, or not, because some of those things carry over from the Old Testament, although I don't know about the carrying the shiny cross thing around. But all that other stuff, it's not necessarily, you, know, you want to wear robes? I mean, the Old Testament priests, they wore robes. Wear robes. You want to, you know, carry the cross around? Okay, I got it. It's the carrying the presence and putting it on the altar. That's good. You want to bow before the, the throne as you perceive it? I, I don't know that that's necessarily wrong. You want to drink out of the common cup? That's you. But what I'm going to tell you today is the foundation of the church is not that. It's much simpler than that. And as believers, as the sprouted seed, we got a long way away from what the design that God had us for the foundation of the church. He has a purpose for the church. And all believers everywhere, in every nation, tribe, and tongue, all nations, all places, are brothers and sisters in Christ of one body that is the body of Christ. You can have a difference of opinion in, you know, pro-robe or anti-robe. But it's about the Messiah and whether or not you possess him as your Savior. To go and try to go into that church and say, man, you're doing this wrong, you're going to have no success at all. But if you speak to people to their heart and the things in their wickedness of their heart, be saved from this wicked and perverse generation, start right there. 
Don't worry about the outside trappings. If they're going there, they're preaching the gospel, God bless them. I pray that they grow spiritually there. I pray that they have reach out, outreach. But the picture of the church is not the stuff that goes on inside the building. The picture of the church is the things that go on outside the building. And that's what I want us to see today. So I thought we could go to the book of Acts first. And we'll start right at the very beginning in Acts there in Acts 1. So the Bible was given to us. So the Acts is a, is a, a kind of a strange book. You can... I don't want to say you'll get yourself in trouble, but don't go to the book of Acts first and start making doctrines that you're going to, uh, you know, die on that hill on, okay? Because there's stuff going on in Acts that is the establishment of the church. So we have apostles. So the, the name of Acts, in some cases, you would see it as the Acts of the Apostles. That's the name, technically, but that's what it's implying, the Acts. And it's not talking about all apostles either. It's talking about primarily Peter and Paul. If you read the book of Acts, 95% of it's either Peter or Paul. The rest, you got a Stephen thrown in here, or Barnabas thrown in there, Silas. But for the most part, it's about Peter and it's about Paul. The acts of these two disciples, or apostles, sorry, and the work that they did to establish the church. So we got the Old Testament. When you go to the book of Acts, you read Acts, you see what Peter's preaching from. You know what he's not preaching from? Matthew, John. Luke, Peter, oh yeah, he is, because he is, he's writing Peter. But he's not, he's not preaching from the New Testament books. He's preaching from the Old Testament. The Old Testament possesses every single thing that a man or a woman, a child, a Jew, a Gentile, a Muslim, an Arab, or any other tribe, nation, or tongue needs to find salvation. It's all there. If you go and see what Peter preached from, he largely preached from Psalms. And the Psalms talks about the Messiah a lot. But these people's eyes were closed to the Messiah. And so Peter says, look, it's in Psalms, and it says right here, remember what just happened in Jerusalem, and they hung a man on the cross? Well, he didn't stay dead. He rose again. What? He rose again? I never heard of such. Yeah, go back here to Psalms. And he reads it to them out of Psalm. And they're like, oh, maybe it's possible. And even the rabbis, even some of the, uh, the uh, high up in the synagogues and stuff, even some of those guys accept Christ as they hear Peter read from the Psalms, they're like, oh, okay, the light comes on. That makes sense. The Messiah did come. The chosen one did come. He came. We didn't know he came. Thanks for telling us. Then they go to another place, and then they go to the Gentiles, and they go to the Gentiles and tell them, okay, you guys don't know all the Jewish stuff that you should know, but here's how it looks in the Old Testament. A really good picture there is Acts 17. Let me read it to you. Here's, uh, here's Paul talking to uh, the men of Athens. Look what he says. See whether or not he quotes Matthew or not. Verse 23, I was passing through and considering the, ob uh, 17 verse 23, I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. <clears throat> Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I must proclaim to you. God who made the world, where did he start? He starts at Genesis with the gospel. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men. You see that? There's only one kind of man. Man. That's it. All flavors, all colors, all hues, all languages are all from one man, the man Adam that God created. And then from Noah and his children, whatever flavors they were on the ark, then we got the flavors that we got around the world. They came from one man. 
He made one blood, all men, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And he determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Okay, Africans, you live here in Africa. Okay, Swedish people, you live here in Sweden. And he put them there. He moved them there. He moved them around at the Tower of Babel. He sorted them by language. And they went by language. They went by whatever. Whatever attracted them to one another. Asian people over here and whatever. However they attracted. And then it says in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. It was in those days, somehow, they were divided by language or they were divided by the earth separating or whatever. But that that day, in the day of Peleg, the Bible tells us that the, the nations, the world was divided. There was a division in language. There was a division in people. There was a division in land. And they went to their appointed place that God prescribed for them. And he, uh, so that these men, the whole world, should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. To grope is to turn off all the lights and uh, there's no light whatsoever, and then to try to find the exit. That's the grope. That's what that means, to wander around like a blind person. And to grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. He's right here. If we speak and we act, we speak to him, Lord, save me. He's right here, and he will, and he'll come, and he'll save. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are of the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. He's not a fake idol. He hears us when we pray. Something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance to this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. You see Jesus' name in there? Do you see the name of the Messiah in there? Paul led men to the gospel of Jesus Christ without ever mentioning the Messiah's name. When he pointed out that there was a man, the God-man, and that he rose from the dead, and they said, we'll hear you again about this. Is that not unbelievable? He didn't have Matthew, Mark, and Luke to quote from. He used the Old Testament to draw all men to the Father. That's what Jesus said his goal was, to draw all men to the Father. I and the Father are one. Get them to the Father. Use me to get men to the Father. And that's what Paul did. It's a pretty neat little testimony right there. We should probably all memorize it. When you talk to pagan people, to heathen people, to unsafe people, start right there. Where does he start? He starts at creation. That's one of the best places to start. How did we get to this place? Oh, man, uh, uh, evolution. Are you kidding me? I'll give you a dollar if you can even produce a wheat seed by the word of your mouth. I'll give you $1,000. It's not possible. Grow. Grow, grow, that's what she's saying. It ain't happening. He does it all. So this book of Acts, it's not necessarily a doctrinal book as much as it is a history of these two apostles and the work that they did. But what it also is, it's the foundation of the church and how the church is developed. And that's what I wanted you to see today. What is it that we should be doing if we want to be, we say, well, I'm, we, I go to a New Testament church. And then you go to the church and the guy's carrying a big brass cross around. And you're like, well, where does it, well let me look in the book and see if I find it. And I don't find it. Well, what about the robes with all the jazz and the tall collar? I don't find it. I don't find it. What about music? What about music, using music to attract people to the gospel? You're not going to find it. It's not in there. 
Is it good to have music? Yeah, music good. But you're not going to find it. You've, the, the way we attract people to the gospel of Christ is we tell them about the gospel of Christ. So let's look at this early church. It says, verse 4, 1, Acts 1, verse 4. Acts 1, verse 4. So the book of Acts is the development of the church. Everything after the book of Acts, except for Revelation, basically, is what the church looks like. People got the same problems, whatever. Everything before the book of, of Acts, the Gospels, where Christ comes on the scene, and before that, God and the, the development of the whole world, his leading men and men constantly going astray. And then, you know, we have Christ and we have Acts. Then we have the church as it's developed in those other books, in Romans, Corinthians, and epistles. And then you get to Revelation, and that's future things. All we're worried about is the start. Here it is. Being assembled together with them. This is Christ. He tells them what to do. Being assembled together with them, Christ commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Thing one is being assembled together. What is the church but an assembly of people, like-minded people, together? Peter and these other um, these other apostles who had been with Christ could testify what Christ you know, looked like, what he smelled like, what he ate, what he did, and what he said, how he raised people from the dead and healed the blind and all these things. They, could, they were there. They knew him. They saw him in person. They had experienced him. And Jesus said, look, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to dwell with you, and it's going to be like I'm there with you. And he says, go in this one place and wait. So we have this group of people and they waited. So the, the biggest thing, the first and biggest thing is we're commanded by the Messiah. He who comes to me, hears my sayings, and does them. We're commanded by the Messiah to assemble together as like-minded believers. That's thing number one. If you're going to hear the voice of God, you can hear it in your private prayer. You can hear it in reading the Word. You can hear it potentially it says if you know the word you're filled with the word that you don't have to like try to memorize all this stuff but i'll give you the word when you need it when you stand before kings and rulers and you'll have the word there but you got to put it in first for it to come back out right but the best place to do that is in the fellowship of believers the fellowship of believers people coming together it's not just coming to hear dale or some other pastor speak it's the coming together where we encourage one another in the fellowship where we remind one another what has happened thus far. And we remind each other again to remain loyal until the end. That's what we do. As fellow believers, we come together. Instead of coming to church together, which this fellowship is pretty good about this. It hasn't always been this way, but we don't come and talk about, we're, we're not here to talk about football. We're not here to talk about, you know, silly things. But we're here to talk about serious things, the thing of the Spirit. I'm here to talk about the Spirit, and you're here to talk about the Spirit. And when we get together, and we can have unity of mindset while you talk to me about the Spirit, God's working in your, in your life, in the Word, what you've learned, how you've seen it developed in other people, how you've seen spiritual growth in people, how you've talked to other people. And then we can kind of like, oh man, and I talked to this guy. Um, Linda was telling me about how her, her granddaughter, who we saw saved in this church, uh, and we got to baptize in this church, and now she's having a little small group with some of the girls on her little volleyball team. See what, eighth grade or something? Seventh grade, sixth grade, she's pretty young. So she's having this little group. Okay, that's what I want to hear in church. 
We can talk about football later. We can go outside and talk about football. We can talk about football as a door opener to reach the lost man in the world. But let's not talk about football to the people that are inside the fellowship that are struggling with everything that they're struggling with. We'll wait. We can talk about that out there. This is in here. In here, we're here to fellowship with one another. The only way we can fellowship with one another is if we're with uh, one another. We've got to be together. If we're not together, we, we ain't going to but we're not going to be able to fellowship that way. We're not going to be able to encourage each other in that way. So the first thing it was is it said, uh, let's go on down there. Uh, so Christ says to wait for him in Jerusalem. Wait together. Wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you have heard from me. So in obedience, obedience they did it. Look at Acts 1, start at verse 13. So they did what he said. They went back to Jerusalem because they were supposed to, because they were it's one of the feasts where you had to be there, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And this is Passover. I'm sorry, this is Pentecost. And they returned to Jerusalem, so they were obedient. And it says, when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said, blah, blah, blah. So here's what they got going on. Again, they're together. They're together in one place. They returned to Jerusalem. It doesn't say they went to the temple together. It doesn't say they went to First Baptist Jerusalem together. They just were together. They could have been outside. They could have been inside. It could have been at home. 120 people. They did have some courtyard type homes where they had the little rooms around the courtyard that might sit 120. They had the original apostles. And then it says, they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. So the first thing that they did was, even though we have this time between Christ's ascension and this day, they continued to meet together very often. We don't know if it's once a week Twice a week, five times a week, we don't know up to this point. We'll find out later that they met daily. But at this time, we don't know. Say they met on the Sabbath, likely. So they meet on the Saturday. They're coming together, and they're praying. And it says they're all in one accord. It's not a Honda. It's a place, together. They're all together. And they're in prayer and supplication. They're there purposefully to pray and supplication, be prayers for others. And what are they praying for? They're being persecuted. They're being pursued. They're poor. They're hungry. They're praying for, uh, Lord, I wish we had a bigger space to squeeze 120. Can you imagine ladies having 120 people in your house? Um, I've been to Peru. They do that. They pack it in there. If there's a good preacher going on, they'll pack in there, hanging out the windows. They'll, they'll open the windows of the house, and the people stand in the streets and stare in the windows and kind of lean on the windows and stuff, and then they'll pull their little chairs and stuff, and they'll just stand out there and listen if you're teaching inside a house. That's what's going on here. But they were together. I think that's one of the key things that we miss. We're very casual with the coming together. We're very casual with that. Well, I got other stuff going on. Sunday's a good day, man, to take off, go to the lake, and do whatever you do, whatever your thing is. It, you know, I'm, I'm at rest. I'm resting. I can hear the Lord's voice there. Jesus said... Assemble together. That's what he said. Do that. Just do what he says. You can't go wrong with that. And what I saw here is they did it with the women. 
So we have a cultural thing there going on. Actually, the Roman Empire really had a women's feminist kind of movement going on in that day, and it ultimately harmed them. But, um, but in general, in the Jewish culture, they weren't seen as equals but lower than. Thank you, Lord, that I was born not a woman or a dog, a Jewish prayer. So to have the women as a part of the fellowship and allow them input even more in prayer and supplication is a big deal. So there's an expectation, women, of our church for you to do something. And I, and, and I don't mean clean the kitchen every Sunday. I, I appreciate it. I do appreciate that you guys help and clean up the food and set out the food and cook. If you got the guys cooking in there, it's a whole different meal after church. We're having pizza every Sunday. You got the women cooking in there, it's good. It's good cooking. God bless you, ladies. Thanks for cooking. That's not what your calling is. It's part of your calling. Thank you for serving the fellowship in that way. Your calling, it says, is prayer and supplication with the fellowship. That's your calling. Grow spiritually in the word so that you know what you're talking about and then pray and supplication with the fellowship. It's a big deal. You can do that and have a great influence on other people in the fellowship. Ladies don't like this one too much, but in, in Corinthians it talks about the older ladies teaching the younger ladies. Well, younger ladies are prideful, just like younger men are prideful. And you think you got the answers, and then some old lady comes over and like, you know, the best way to swaddle a baby, and you're like, get off me, old woman. I can swaddle my baby. We had a old lady at, at uh, Central, and I'm telling you, she worked in the nursery easy 40 years. And every young gal would come in there, and she had all the answers. And about six weeks later, they'd be like, hey, Miss Bonnie, uh, could you give me some <laughs> They didn't like her at first because she's a bossy pants. But she knew what she was talking about. You can listen to what the old lady says. She's raised a lot of babies, and she'll help you keep yours alive too. She'd be glad to help you. Don't be stubborn. Listen to the old ladies. They know what they're talking about. Plus, they're better at cooking cookies. Listen to them. They'll give you the good recipes. So part of the development of the church was the women being a part, growing in the Word. I'm really excited, I'm telling you, about what that book that Emily's fixing to do with y'all, whoever comes. It's a good book. It's good. It's good stuff. It'll help develop you as a lady, as a, not just as a lady, but as a believer. I think we're going to do so. I want to do something with the men too. Uh, and uh, I got gave a book to uh, Alvin. I'll give you one, uh, Bill. If I didn't, did I give you the one on authentic manhood? Did I give you that one? Anyway, did I give you that one? It's pretty good. It's the thing we're missing. The men need to, to be developed. They need to be developed spiritually. To have a bunch of classes on child rearing in the church, not what the church needs to be doing. The old men need to be teaching the the old men that know the word of God need to be teaching the young men so that the young men know the word of God, so that they can teach the younger men, so that they can teach the children, so that they can teach the little bitty children. And the same thing, the old women need to teach the younger women, need to teach the younger women, need to teach the children. That's the plan. That's the design that God laid out here. That's how churches were supposed to be. The fellowship wasn't to be necessarily where you had, you know, old man Sunday school, old woman Sunday school, middle-aged couples, younger couples, college youth people, and children in different Sunday schools. They should have all been hearing the word together, developed together in the word. And then the father hears the word and he goes home and he says, all right, kids, that guy was using big words in there like predestination and justification and death. Sit down here and let me tell you what it means. And then the father comes home and he goes over it again with his children and he develops his family and he prays with his children. And then he reads the Bible to his children. And I'm going to tell you how children are going to respond to that, having had children. They're going to be like, oh, come on, man. 
And you're like, you're going to sit there. You're going to hear it. And someday it's going to come back around and they're going to be the ones leading their families in the same way. And that's how it's designed. And that's what we got to do. So what the people did, here's the start of the church again. I got off track, sorry. They all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. They were together in prayer and supplication with the women. And then it says, Peter stood up in the midst of them, 120 or so, men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled. And he begins to preach. So here's the development. They continued together. They prayed and supplicated together. They associated with women and others in prayer. They listened to preaching and teaching by apostles. That's important. Those that knew Christ the best. And verse 5, they waited and continued waiting in obedience to Christ's command, and they did it together. I have been in, I went to a Sunday school here recently when I went to visit my cousins, and they had a lady... It's not a problem that it was a lady necessarily in the Sunday school class. It was a very small church. There was maybe eight people in the Sunday school class, and they just took turns letting someone teach. Well, this lady was inexperienced in teaching. She had no idea. She hadn't read the scriptures beforehand. She had no idea. what. And so we just started reading, and we were reading somewhere in Deuteronomy. And it was like, you know, you take the lamb, and you kill the lamb with this way with salt. And she's like, well, what does this mean to you? No, that's not who teaches not because she's a woman, but because she doesn't know what she's talking about. If you're called to teach in a class, man, study beforehand. Get some notes together. Pray beforehand. Get somebody older than you to tell you what it means if you don't understand. And then teach at the level that you're competent to teach at. If they, if they say, I want you to teach out of Numbers chapter 11, and you go there and read it, you have no idea what it's talking about, call them up and say, this ain't me. I ain't got it. Get somebody that knows something about numbers. And then for you, this is what you're required of then. Start reading numbers until you know it. And so the next time when they call you, you can give an answer. But if you don't have the answer, don't lead children astray. Remember, better to have a millstone tied around your neck than to lead one of these little ones astray. Don't do it. You'll cause confusion in someone. Don't do it. It was experienced people that understood the word that taught in a corporate setting. This doesn't let you off the hook. We're going to see why. So they add an apostle because they don't have anything better to do there about uh, verse 23 there. And they have a vote. Uh, Matthias gets voted in. And then it says in chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, where are they at? They're all together in one accord again. They're right where they're supposed to be. They're all together. It's the, like I said, it's the strong message in Acts. Where were the people? They were together. Where were God's people? They were together. God's people are very scattered in our nation in a lot of places, but particularly here, I think. And I think it's one of the reasons that these people had such unity in their fellowship. One of the reasons was they were under severe persecution. When you're all persecuted together, when you suffer together, you'll grow tighter. You want to see a family get tight together or else explode? Have a death in the family, somebody close. Uh, have a kid get really sick. Um, go through really hard times. File bankruptcy. Go, go bankrupt. And that family will get really strong or they'll completely fall apart. It depends what they're based on. The negative things of life are the things that develop us as people and as believers. And the strongest families are the ones that have gone through terrible hardship together. The ones that make it through they're indestructible. 
the church members that we deal with today, it's a very first world problem. I listen to this preacher over here. I listen to uh, uh, David Jeremiah over here. And then you're listening to uh, Adrian Rogers over here. And then you're listening to all good guys, Alistair Begg over there. And then you're listening to Charles Stanley over there. And you're listening to Prince guy. What's the Prince guy? I can't think of his first name, but um, you're listening to Mr. Prince there. Um, huh? Uh, that doesn't sound. Anyway, Derek, Derek Prince. And then you're and you're listening to this guy. He's a he's an evangelist. You're listening to this guy. He's a he's a faith healer. You're listening to this lady over here. And and so what happens is you have you don't have one mind. You have assorted mindsets come together trying to filter this stuff out. It's 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 good to listen to uh, other takes on, especially if you're going to preach or something like that. It's good to listen to preaching during the day. If you listen to too many flavors, you'll get confused. I promise you. Well, this guy's Armenian in his view. This guy's Calvinist in his view. This guy says you can't be saved unless you've been baptized. This guy says baptism has no part of salvation. This guy says you've got to drink from the common cup, this guy says. And before long, you don't know what you believe. Read the book. Read the book for yourself. Study to show thyself approved unto God. Individually, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we read the book. We're careful to make sure what it says before we tell somebody else about that. But we get it in there. We get it in there. And then we can listen to a pastor. Pick one and go with it. If Adrian Rogers is your guy, listen to Adrian Rogers. Pick one. Alistair Begg's a good one. Pick him. Whatever. I don't care. Pick one, though. Quit jumping around because it's going to cause a, a disunity in mindset. The other reason we have disunity in mindset is because our minds are distracted by a million things in the world. We're distracted by our cell phones and by Facebook and by Instagram and TikTok and all these things. And we think that it's very important to know what's going on there. And it means nothing. It's an idol is exactly what it is. And it's breaking you and it's destroying you and you don't even realize it. And so you're taking in these things of the world. You're pouring it in there. And what it does is it builds this kind of little rubbery shield over the cornerstone. So everything trying to penetrate to the cornerstones bouncing off on all this secular jazz that you filled your mind with. And the other thing is, is just the different things that we do with our time. If we take in the same things as the world takes in, then we're going to think like the world. That's just how it is. And the last thing is, we're pretty bad about fellowshipping with one another. We gain so much satisfaction from the things outside of the fellowship that we have trouble enjoying the fellowship and gaining satisfaction from the people, from the word and the development inside the fellowship. It's a problem. If we were under the persecution that these people were, if we were under the starvation tactics that these people were, where they were no longer allowed to work in the culture, they were kicked out of jobs and, and run off of stuff, um, we would be a lot closer to each other. Do I want persecution? Not particularly, but it, apparently persecution grows the church. That's just how it is. So the growth of this church was initially apostle-initiated because he was the one that had been with Christ. So he knew the deal he had been with Christ, he knew Christ, and he could express himself well about it. And that's why we see Peter standing up here and there and speaking publicly, Paul speaking publicly, um, James speaking publicly, Philip speaking publicly, because they had been with Messiah. They had heard him personally. But it doesn't stay there. It flourishes when the apostle speaks to the people, the people hear the word, and they have one mindset, and they begin to develop individually, growing in the word. As that happens, then the responsibility goes from the apostle to teach all men everywhere to the individual person in the fellowship to teach all men everywhere. 
I'm not going to reach the same people you're going to reach. I've, I don't know if I've met. I think, uh, I think I've met everyone in, in Mr. Alva's family, but maybe once. I can't be responsible for the salvation of Mr. Alva's family. I met him like one time, you know, and here and there, you know. He's responsible for the salvation of his family. You're responsible for the salvation of your family. I don't know who your neighbors are. Go out to Vandiver, try to find a neighbor out there. You guys are all spread out, and it's crazy out there. And some guy comes up out of the woods. I met some guy over there, and he's like, oh, yeah, I know Lynn Davis. I'm like, how does this hillbilly? I mean, I'm never going to reach that guy, but Lynn Davis will. He'll see him. That was quite the funeral. There was some characters there. They came out of the woods. I never met any of those people. The only people I knew at this funeral I did for them was Karen. That was it. That was the only person I knew in the whole thing. That's crazy. There's a lady. I'm telling you, that's some strong blood out there in Vanderbilt. There was a lady who looked about like Amanda Baldwin. That was some strong blood you guys got going out there. <laughs> Anywho, and they all look like Lynn Davis. That was crazy, too. <laughs> I never seen the likes. There was about five people that looked like Lynn. But I'll never meet those people. I'm not responsible for bringing those people the gospel. You are. You know them. I don't know them. I never met them. I don't even think they liked me. They're like, you're not from here, are you, boy? No. They just called me in to do the... Guy's got his musket. I'm like, I'm not from here. But you guys are. Talk to them out there. You are responsible for those people. I'll be responsible for my people. You be responsible for your people. The apostle gave you the word. The gospel is written down for you, and then you take it in, and then you take it from there, and you talk to your people and your neighbors and your fellowships and your school mates and your work mates. You talk to them. So as the church begins to grow, it's all about gathering together. Go to Acts 2. This is Pastor Elias' favorite verses right here. Starting in verse 39. Acts 2, starting in verse 39. This promise, Peter tells them, this is what you do. Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Verse 39. This promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word. So have you ever gladly received the word of God? Raise your hand. If you've ever received the gospel... And you received it with gladness. Did you receive it with gladness? Are you saved? Well, here's what you do. Look, it tells you what to do. They were baptized. Gladly received the word, number one. Number two, be baptized. And then it says, verse 42, it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. How often? Steadfastedly. Daily. That's pretty often. As often as it's possible, they got together and they listened to those that knew more about the word than they did. Now fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Through the apostles. The apostles had a special anointing from the Father. They were there with Christ. They knew the deal. Could other people bring healing? Yes. Could other people speak in tongues? Yes. Did, where did the signs and wonders and the a majority of that came from? It came from those that were closest to Christ. You say, I want to grow in these spiritual gifts, get closer to Christ. That's what I'm going to tell you. That's what, it's, that's what you do. Fear came upon them. Now all who believed were together, again it says, where were they? They were together, had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods, and divided them amongst as anyone had need, continuing daily with one another in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. There's a lot going on in there. This is the quick and dirty that I'm going to tell you because we're going to do communion. I want you to have time to focus on that too. They continued steadfastly together in doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking bread, and in prayers. Depending on who you listen to, I'm going to tell you, there's more than one way to define breaking bread. This isn't daily having communion, although some pastors teach it that way. This communion that we take now is based on Passover. These people were really big on the feast. These were mostly Jewish people in this age, and they're talking about eating with one another, not necessarily taking communion with one another. They did, as it says in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, uh, whenever you take this meal, but it's whenever you take this meal, like at Passover time, don't be hogging each other out. Don't be getting all the good food. But however, I can argue with you about that if you want to or not. I would prefer not to. You can look it up for yourself. But I'm telling you, this is about going to one another's homes and getting to know one another in a closer fellowship by having a meal together. As people invite me into their homes, I go to their home and they say, well, tell us about yourself. And I tell them about me and then they tell me about them. And they say, well, I used to do this. And I say, well, I used to do that. And um, I quit doing that. They say, well, we quit doing this. <laughs> and then we, we begin to develop a relationship there. This is what I did for a living. And we get to know one another. And in that, then we can go and talk about the word. Well, where do you stand on whatever? They always ask me, quit asking me these hard questions. Are you an Arminianist or a Calvinist? Man, can't we just have spaghetti night? <laughs> do we got to go there, <laughs> you know? Um, did Christ really die three days in the grave? Ay, yeah, you know, past the whatever, chicken. You know, quit asking me the hard questions. But uh, get to know one another, speak about the word, speak about positive things, speak, encourage one another with the gospel. That's what you do. They went, they continued together, together in the apostles' doctrine. What was the apostles' doctrine? We can go look at it. What did Peter teach from? Taught from the Psalms until they got a better hold on the gospels and they get the gospels and then they can kind of develop the gospels as it went on. They taught on the different things. One thing I, I, I do believe that we try to do here in this fellowship is give the whole counsel of God, which is all of the Bible. There's more going on in the Bible than just the gospel. We need to teach all of it. The gospel is important. We teach all of it, the whole Bible. How do we act? How do we live? And how do we do it together? So how do I grow in zeal for the gospel like when I first believed? What is the church supposed to look like? The church is supposed to look like this. We have trouble doing this. We're very busy people. We actually pride ourselves on our busyness and our going and doing. And I was over here and I saw these people and I did that and I, whatever. But there's got to be time where you meet together. It's one reason we have this meal every week where we break bread together. It slows you down. Even in the work and cleaning up the meal together is, is part of the fellowship. It's part of it. It's where we get to work with each other. It's where we get to tease each other. It's where we get to love each other. It's where we get to encourage each other. We get to tell each other about our sicknesses and the health problems of our kids and our whatever things going on. We get to tell each other and the other person can pray with you and help develop you in that. That's the church. That's what it's supposed to do. I tell you again, uh, the reason the church grew right here and is not growing so well today 
is because these people did these things together openly outside of the church building. We're really bad to do all of our celebratory type stuff inside the church instead of outside the church. It's hard to get the gospel to somebody that's never heard the gospel if you never tell somebody that never heard the gospel the gospel. Did you get it? <laughs> you got to go to them. You got to tell them. Why would you pray for some Joe Blow on the street? Because the Lord told me to. I can pray for people all day long in here. The people in here are saved. The apostles, these people, as they received the word, one of the things that they didn't do in order to reach the lost was invite them to a Christian concert or tell them to listen to Christian music or try to give them some kind of Christian counseling or, or bring them to an apostle for him to give them the gospel. They gave them the gospel. And then that guy received the gospel and then he sat down under the apostle and the apostle taught him the more sure word. That's how it works. See, there wasn't a lot of unsaved people in the church because the unsaved people are very dangerous. They could go and tell Caesar what was going on in the church and then Caesar sent his people and kill them all. You didn't invite unsaved people in the church. One of the problems with the churches in the United States is there's a lot of unsaved people in there and they're the ones running the show. And it's a train wreck because they take secular things and they bring them in and say the church should look like this. The church should look like this. It says what it should look like in one accord, in fellowship, breaking bread together, in prayers, being taught by an apostle, witnessing. That's it. No brass cross, no fancy robes, no shiny shoes, just that. It's a lot. If we could do that better, we'd see the church grow better. The establishment of the church has just so little to do with the building. I am very appreciative of this building, I cannot lie. I really like padded chairs. We had hard chairs over there. I like soft, comfy ones that aren't metal because the metal ones will freeze you to death in the winter, right? I like heat and air conditioning. Those, they're not negative things to have those things, but if they distract from you doing the work of the gospel that's outside of the church, then that's bad. We've got to be careful. Miss Mary told me one time when, she first, when you first came here, she doesn't even remember it, I promise. But I was telling, she was kind of asking about how the church was going or how we did it. And I said, well, I'm trying to work on this part back here and kind of develop this. I'd like to put a little thing on the front. She goes, oh, be careful. Don't do too much to the church. If you make it too nice, the church itself will become an idol. I was like, okay, let's leave it crummy then. No, no, <laughs> no, we don't want to do that either, but we want it to look nice. We want people to be comfortable, but what we want people to do is be stored up with the word here so that they take it out there. That's what we want. If you'll do that, you'll do well. So I do want to continue on these things and kind of develop this. We're going to stop right there for now. But the establishment of the church, it's not about the building. It's not about the music. It's not about Sunday school or Bible quarterlies. It's about the fellowship of the believers developed in the word of God, worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth. That's what it's about. It, it doesn't require a particular outfit or the guy wearing a suit and tie. It doesn't hurt, but it doesn't, that, that's, not the, that's not the game. The game is to tell others about the gospel, to grow the kingdom. You know what these people had no power to do in this church age right here? They couldn't vote. They couldn't change the political atmosphere at all. But what they could do was change the hearts of people with the gospel, and then the political atmosphere will change. 
And we need to look at it the same way. We can vote. I don't know if it counts or not. You can measure that in your own heart. But I'm telling you, the way we're going to change our country is we're going to have to change the hearts of the people in the country. We're going to have to restore them to Christ. When they're restored to Christ, restored to the Father, the country will change. I pray that you'll do your part in that this year. I really like what it says. It's a a four-part thing. Fellowship, breaking bread together, worship, and witness. That's where we're going to start next time I get to speak to you all. And uh, fellowship, breaking bread, worship, and witness. And it's there in Acts 2, starting in basically verse 42. As we get ready to um, break bread together, this is the other definition of breaking bread, and that is um, what we call communion. One of the things, it's so, I've seen it overseas a lot, but one of the first things that happens with believers, especially overseas, they don't have anything, okay? So you go to Peru, dirt floors, largely adobe walls, um, uh, straw roof, bamboo roof sometimes, sometimes limited roof, sometimes metal roof. And so you go and you, and you give the gospel and somebody accepts Christ. And the difference between somebody accepting Christ there and, and here is it's, we're, we're pretty closed off as a people and they're very open as a people. I'm not sure if that's true for all countries. I can speak for Peru the most and Africa a little bit and for some other places I've been like that. But in all the places I've been, no matter how poor the people are, the first thing they want to do with you is have a meal with you. It is the craziest thing. And so you, you speak to them the gospel and they're like, hey, come to my house. It's right over here. That's a lie. Whenever they tell you that, you're fixing to walk a long ways. If they say it's just right over here, you got at least an hour of walking in perilousness, serpents and swamp. But go to their house and they're going to sit down with you and they're going to give you the very best they have, which is going to be a bottle of Coca-Cola probably and uh, or in South America will be Inca-Cola, which is like pink bubblegum flavored. It's kind of yucky. And then they're going to have some kind of bread and that's what you're going to eat. And that's going to be their meal for the day. In fact, they're going to spend more money in that day than they probably would ever spend on themselves. But they're so excited to have received the word like the Ethiopian eunuch and go away glad and they want to share it with you. Tell me more now that I'm saved. What should I do now? Man, what a blessing to go and be a part of that. And so the, the meal there, I wanted to read this to you in Acts 16.34. It's where the, the jailer, where they have the earthquake and Paul and Silas are freed from the jail and the jailer thinks he's going to be killed. And that night the same hour, he took them and washed their stripes, the jailer, and immediately he and his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. We're going to have communion together. What we're going to do is we're going to celebrate the Passover of the Lord. I've told you a number of times, I'll tell you again, he never told us to celebrate Christmas, his birth, or Easter, his, his uh, resurrection. What he told us to always celebrate was his death for us on the cross. And so that's what we're going to do. That's what communion is. When we break the bread and we drink the wine, we're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus came, lived a sinless life, died on our behalf. He didn't stay dead, but he rose again the third day and he made intercession today for us before the Father. And even you can have salvation and eternal life if you will but confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. What I want you to do is just bow your head right there before we begin. And I want you to just kind of consider the things that you've held or harbored, the negative views, the things you've thought wickedness of others. It says if we consider anger in our hearts towards another, that's the same as committing murder in our hearts. 
And the Bible tells us thou shalt not murder. And he says, if we've looked at a woman with lust in our eyes, that's the same as committing adultery in our hearts. And if we've done that, we need to repent of that. We want our hearts and our hands clean before God before we come and take a meal with him and break bread with him and commune with him. So just take a second there and, and just pray, restore, uh, pray for restoration between yourself and the Father. Ask for his forgiveness for those things that you're carrying. Man, now this is an open table. Anyone that's here that would like to receive the, the, the bread and the wine is free to do that. It would be good if you were saved. It would be much better that you knew the Messiah as your own personal Savior. So repent and ask him to save you. Father in heaven, we come as, as best as we know how in as humble of way that we know how. And we ask for your mercy upon us now. We have done things against you, against you and you alone have I sinned, Lord. We ask for your mercy now and, and your restoration in us that we could, we could have a better relationship with you this day. Wash us and make us clean, Lord. Make us whiter than snow. Thank you for your goodness to us and your long suffering towards us. You have shown grace where we didn't deserve it. You've shown mercy where we didn't deserve it, Lord. We ask you for that continued mercy in our lives as we come before you now to celebrate in communion. Lord, we thank you for the word that was spoken. I pray that the word is, is pleasant to you, that it's the word that was to be spoken to encourage these, that they would desire to serve you with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Be with us now, Lord, as we take this bread in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, there, it's going to be served to you all today. got a song? Go ahead, man. Oh, so
lost in darkest night yet thought I knew the way the sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave I had no hope that you would own a to your will and if you had not loved me first I would refuse you stay 
All right, thank you, man. We have our piece of bread. By, our, by his stripes we're healed. Bruised, see the little bruises there? Pierced for our transgressions. Same bread they've used forever. I've told you that before. They would have had this piece broken into multiple pieces. And one piece they had hidden away in the little napkin, you know. And then up from the grave he arose, right? He says he was broken for our sins. So that's the dessert piece, the afikoman. That's the dessert piece that we get to eat today. It says when they did it, now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that is what we would call Passover, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my, name is at hand, uh, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the 12 and while they were eating, he said, assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The son of man indeed goes just as is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And then, so at the, at the Passover meal, it's kind of a, uh, what do you call that? Country style, right? But big open dishes, all this stuff. And then the father or the senior leader or whatever, he would lead the meal. He would do the speaking parts. You tell him what psalm to read or sing or whatever, what cup to drink out of. And so everybody's hand was in that bowl. That's why they were so convicted. What, the one whose hand was in the bowl? Oh, Lord, is it me? My hand was in the bowl. Yeah, you're going to give me up too. All y'all are. He didn't say all y'all. He said, all of you will, <laughs> but Judas in particular, of course, and they all come back except for Judas. <clears throat> but it's a, a picture to us, and we all had our hand in the bowl with the Messiah. We've all betrayed him at some point by being uh, fallen, um, by even once saved, acting in an unsaved way, right? Man, he's so merciful and good to us. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, you have said it. And as they were eating... Jesus took the bread, took the afikoman, pulls it out of the little napkin, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. He passed it around. They all ate off the same piece. He says, take, eat. This is my body. He blesses it, and he blesses it the same. They've always blessed it. They always said the same prayer, and they didn't realize that they were, they were actually praying for the bread that was the Messiah that was coming to save them. Blessed art thou, our Lord our God, King of the universe, who bringeth forth bread from the earth. So then he took the cup and he gave thanks again, gave it to them all saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So he took the cup of redemption, that is the third cup, and he raised it up. And he said the same prayer that all Jews have always said, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, that bringeth forth fruit from the vine. And it says, When they had sung a hymn, 
they went out to the Mount of Olives. And I told you this morning, if you were in Sunday school, and I'll tell you again now that weren't, uh, they would have sang one of the Psalms uh, from Psalm 113 to 118. But the one I think we should reiterate is the last part of Psalm 115. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord, for he is your help and your shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. It actually says he will bless. A lot of it says us in your Bible, but what it really says emphatically is he will bless. It's a promise. He'll bless the house of Israel. He'll bless the house of Aaron. And he will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. It ends with praise the Lord. I'm going to say it again. We say it with me. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your blessings on us. Thank you for these that have come and heard the word, Lord. I pray that it sinks down into their spirit, convicts their hearts, um, makes them just desire to serve you more today and each day as they go about this year. Thank you for this coming year, Lord. We can't see ahead. Um, We know that negative things are going to happen this year. We know positive things that are going to happen this year. I pray for loyalty, fidelity amongst your people, faithfulness, Lord, that we will do the work of a disciple, do the work of a missionary, do the work of a martyr this year for you, that your name be praised and your glory would go out above all the earth. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and long-suffering towards us, Lord, in Jesus' name.